It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that you may boast in your flesh. But far be it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but, an, uh, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. For now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Amen. So before we start today, this is, as I said, the last passage. Can you believe it? It's been 22 weeks. Today is the 22nd week that we've been in this amazing letter. And uh, I said uh, sort of because what I've decided to do, I feel that this has been such an impactful letter um, in many good ways, but also many challenging ways, uh, that I want to take three weeks and do a recap of the letter to the Galatians under the subject uh, heading of three words. The first week next Sunday will be under the heading of authority. Because one of the major themes in this letter has been Paul's apostolic authority, the authority of the gospel, which is really the authority of God's word. And then secondly, salvation, the gospel. It's about salvation, not only at the point that we come to Jesus Christ, where we're justified by faith, but also our sanctification by faith, um, which is the gospel providing. And so it's a huge and major theme, obviously, of the letter. And then lastly, we're going to look at the subject of the third week of holiness and how this letter speaks to that. So before we dive into unpacking our verses today, let me pray one more time. Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you that we have uh, learned so much from you, from you, Holy Spirit, about this letter, about why Paul wrote it, what it means, what it tells us about who you are, God, and what you've done, and therefore who we are, and as a result of that, how then we should live. It's been amazing to see the consistency in your word from cover to cover, but in this letter, how Paul represents the gospel, how he represents you, how he represents the cross. So we're so grateful for what you've done. I pray today that as we conclude this, that you would give me words uh, that help us understand this passage and the meaning and the depth of what it's saying. And I pray these things in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. So as we begin this morning, I want to ask you to imagine with me this question. Just think about this question as we get into this. What would you think is, what would you suggest is the secret to a happy and successful life? The secret to a happy and successful life. Pretty simple question, right? Easy. I'm sure all of you could answer it. Not so much. Not so easy. Most of us are running around all the time thinking of ways or new secrets, new ways to achieve that happiness and success in life. And so now think about all the ways that people might answer that question, including yourself. I found an article this week by Harvard University, and they've been doing a study for 75 years on this actual subject, attempting to track this exact question in the lives of 700 men. And when they conduct surveys throughout the 75 years and they ask young men and women in their 20s, um, looking ahead, what would they think would, would, would mean a happy and successful life by the time they've achieved it or at the end of their lives? And most of them have said, well, it would be obtaining wealth and fame. 
not the Hollywood type of fame, but, but successful fame, notoriety because of, well, you know, you're wealthy and you, you, you've burned a lot of stuff and got a big house and provided for your family and life has been good, but also you're known to have been successful in your trade or whatever it might be. So now if that's your bar, and it is for many people and has been in my past life and business, uh, what would your focus then be? What would your focus then be in your 20s if that was the goal? If that, what would your focus be? Well, probably your, your education would be right up there. So Harvard's kind of, maybe this is self-promotional, you know, I don't know. But, I mean, obviously you'd need to get, if you want to become really successful, specifically in business, you'd need to go to Harvard and get that MBA, you know, spend all that money, go into, you know, debt forever, but make, you know, so that you could make all that money so that you could set yourself up to achieve those goals, You'd also probably become pretty good at self-promotion, you know, using social media and all the rest of those things, you know, so that you could improve your street cred so that you could get better jobs and, and you'd be known within the trade. You'd need to know how to do that. And, of course, you'd be, to keep up with the competitive landscape, you'd have to keep in shape. You know, you'd have to exercise and work out. I thought it was really funny. I flew over this past week to Salt Spring to visit my sister um, to get prepared for this coming Thursday uh, and the celebration of our mother's life. And uh, I found it really interesting. I flew in to Salt Spring, you know, the land of hemp, hippiedom, you know, everybody's kind of laid back and, you know, it's kind of easy going, right? And then I fly back into downtown Vancouver, into the harbor in downtown Vancouver, and everybody's jogging, you know, everybody's fit, everybody looks completely stressed out, even when they're, it's the change of, it was amazing. But if there's one secret to achieving that type of life success, what would it be? If there was one secret, one word, if you were to narrow it down to one word, what would it be? <laughs> yes, my hand in the audience. That's great. Uh, I would suggest this word. Effort. A lot of effort. Right? Most of us are up for that. Here's what's interesting. I don't know, but when the Harvard um, School had finished their 75th year, After following 700 men for 75 years, they actually found this out by interviewing these men near the end of their lives. They found that one of the most important predictors of whether you age well and live a long and happy life is not the amount of money that you amass, or the number of toys that you amass, or the notoriety that you receive because you're so successful. A much more important barometer of long-term health and well-being, they said, is, drumroll please, relationships. Relationships with your spouse, your family, and your friends. That's the barometer to a happy and successful life. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul, if you think about it, has been going on about and teaching us about in the last few chapters of this letter. The letter itself has really been about the secret, too, to this life, hasn't it? The real and only secret to a happy, better than happy, actually a joyful life. So what is that secret? What is that secret? What have we learned that secret to be in this letter, do you think? Well, it's the reason why he is so astonished and disappointed with the Galatian Christians. It's also the reason why he's so angry with these false teachers who've come down from Jerusalem, isn't it? Actually, the problem for Paul is this. He's basically saying to them, guys, you know you have the secret to life, and you're about to let it fall out of your grasp. What is it? the gospel. It's the gospel. Guys, as I, as I was preparing and thinking about the close of this letter to this week, I'm thinking to myself, man, 
of all of the secrets in your life and my life and the world and, and people's lives that we give ourselves to and we devote ourselves to and we focus on every single day or at least weekly, monthly to try to achieve that happiness and that success, how many Christian of us hold the gospel so dearly? I hope that's the conclusion that you take from this letter because it's all we've really got. It's all the world's got is the gospel. And so let's get into this passage today. Uh, the title of the message, if you look at your notes, is Boasting in Christ, right? And I want to show you three things today that Paul gets into in these eight verses. Number one is looking to ourselves. He's going to show us how we're typically looking to ourselves. Secondly, we need to look to Christ. And then thirdly, all of that will lead to a peaceful, happy, joyful life. Number one, looking to ourselves. Look at the first verse, verse 11. Paul writes, see what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. So in one sense, we've kind of arrived at where we started, right? Remember at the very beginning in the first series, message in this series, I went to this verse, right? And I made, because we were looking at why is he writing this letter? What's the reason? What's the purpose of it? And we highlighted this verse because it's the one where Paul basically says, look, this letter... What I'm writing to you, the subject matter, is so important. I've taken the document out of my assistant's hands. He typically had people who, who uh, wrote, and uh, like assistants who wrote, he dictated his letters to. And at this point, he takes it out of their hands, right? And he writes with his own hand these final comments. He says, this is really important. You've got to get this part. This is the conclusion to this letter. I mean, we know that when he arrived in Galatia, we saw, I believe it was in chapter 4, verse 15, that he had said they loved him so much. He was asking, remember that? He was asking, what happened to that love? Why? Remember when you used to love me instead of those false teachers? And he said, guys, you love me so much, there was a point in time where you would have, I think you would have gouged your own eyes out, he said. Well, why would he have said that? Well, maybe that was just a you know, metaphorical picture, but also we know that he arrived in Galatia and had to stay in Galatia because that was not his destination because of some ailment and illness. And theologians and commentators believe it was because of an eye problem where he couldn't see so clearly. And so he had someone else dictating this, but we also need to see this. This verse, imagine it this way, and those of you who get texts or emails like this, you know how annoying it is. But it's a little bit like he's saying, what I'm writing to you in verse 11 to the end is in all caps, large letters. There's a big emphasis here. And so this verse, again, reminds us of the importance of the letter to the churches in Galatia. Paul was, as we said many times in the series, astonished and disappointed in the young Gentile Christians for believing, and he was also angry with these teachers. This verse then also serves, listen, as the final warning to the churches in Galatia and I believe to us today that we see here. His concluding remarks are going to once again highlight the difference between a religion of works or effort versus the gospel, which is faith alone in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. He goes on in verse 12, and then we get into the meat of what he's having to say, and in all caps, in very large letters, not just verse 11, he says this, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. So first, Paul wants to ask the question, what is the Christian life? 
Is it an inward faith or is it an outward expression of faith? It's really, the letter's been a lot about that. We know and we've seen clearly in this letter that the false teachers are very much about the outward appearances, right? Uh, they arrived in Galatia claiming that if you wanted to be a Christian, a true Christian, yeah, Jesus, that's good, yeah, faith in Jesus, he's the Messiah, son of God, awesome, we love him. But the bottom line is, you know, you needed also to be a law-keeping Jew first, and then you had to show it, men especially, I guess. You had to be circumcised, rather outward appearance action, isn't it? So that's what they brought, that was the teaching they were bringing into the churches, and so look what Paul says this really means. I've said this before, and I'll say it again. I would have loved to have been in the first church that this letter was written into, right, and read into, right? Can you imagine being there? I mean, the Gentile Christians are there, the false teachers are there, and they're hearing this being read, right? And they know these verses are about them. And so do the Galatian Christians who are like, hey, wait a second, he's talking about you here. I would have loved to have been there. I really would have, right? So the motiva- he's saying that, listen, in this verse, their motivation was actually that they achieve a good showing. In other words, that they look good and receive praise for how good they are convincing you, the Galatian Christians, and you and I or anyone, to be like them. That's the first thing that he's, he's alluding to here. He's basically saying that they're doing this for selfish reasons. They just want to look good and receive praise for how good they are at convincing you to be like them. And I wonder, have you ever noticed that in any relationships you have? Have you ever been like that with other people? Uh, I know I think I probably have. Uh, have you ever uh, had someone come up to you and, you know, whether it's a new diet or, or a new, um, you know, exercise regimen or a new way uh, of being successful in life and business and all the rest of it, and, and, and you've wondered, well, well, of course, they're, they're trying so hard to convince me of how good this way is or that thing is or, you know, that exercise or that diet is because they care about me. And then all of a sudden you're like, wait a second. <laughs> Because then they go on to say, like, well, and the last time when I was talking to Bill and Mary and George and Fred and all those, and, and when they heard what I had to say, they got on board right away. You ever had that happen? Yeah. It, it turns out to be about how we're perceived, right? How good we look. And it's always important if we can get other people to follow us and believe what we believe, then it's not just because we care about them. It's because it, it can be a selfish motivation, so the last part of this verse is really most telling. They wanted to show everyone how holy and righteous they were by their outward appearances and outward examples of law-keeping. But they rarely, rarely spoke about the cross of Jesus Christ. Rarely brought it up. That's what Paul's saying. And if they did, it might lead to the kind of persecution that Paul experienced many times. And he's going to allude to in the last verses of this letter. These are men who have figured out, in their mind anyway, that it's much easier to be seen to be righteous, right, by being outwardly religious. A lot of religious people like that. The Christian life, as we've said many times throughout the series, is not an easy life. Take up your cross and follow me. Suffer like me. Yay, Jesus, go ahead. I'll be right behind you. Right? But that's what he's asking and telling us to do. 
And yet we get, you know, struggles and things come our way. We're like, oh, this is hard. Well, I know what I'll do. I'll look holy and righteous when I need to on Sunday in missional community group. That'll be good enough. But again, Paul's emphasis and the thrust of the gospel is that Christianity is about inward change and transformation. You're changed the moment the Holy Spirit comes into your heart, but there's a lot of work to be done. That sinful nature is still there, still wants to be present, still wants to reign and rule. It's got to be put to death, crucified, nailed to the cross, and left there. That is why he first points to their desire here, right? That desire, that's that, that's that word again, remember, in the Greek? It's that word lust, right? Their desire here is to make a good showing outwardly. And if you look back at chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, and, and what does Paul say about the gospel there? He says that the cross is an offense. It's offensive to the human mind and the human heart. I mean, who wants to be told, listen, how many people in this world, how, how many of you wanted to be told at one point in time, and anybody that you know in the workplace, friends, climbing, whatever it might be, who want to be told, right, that they cannot by their own effort achieve whatever they want in life, and that especially includes God's approval and acceptance? How many people want to be told that? Did you want to be told that? I don't know so many people who do. Nobody wants to hear that. They especially don't want to hear this, that they're too weak and too sinful to do anything to save themselves. Don't want to hear that. And so we, we can see it on both sides of the spectrum here. Listen, both sides of the spectrum. The cross is offensive to our progressive and liberal worldview and culture today. You know, people would, would hear you and I say this. Jesus is the only way and that all other religions are false. And there are liberal progressives in our world today would say, wow. You are, you are so intolerant. You, know, you, you, are, you are hateful, exclusive, and narrow-minded. I love that exclusive one, right? Because we're being exclusive about Jesus, but what the culture is saying is, no, there can't be one way. There must be many ways. That's also an exclusive statement. Got to put that in there, right, every time so that we understand that. But that's the liberal progressive view of the gospel. But we can't let conservative people off the hook. Conservatives find the gospel offensive too because it states that without the cross, hear this, good people are in as much trouble as bad people. Oh my goodness. How many times have any of you, I, again, I, am I the only confessor in this room? But how many of you have ever been in a state where you've looked at people on television or in your community and, and, and you know, oh, it's going to be pretty hard for them to be saved? Because like me, on the other hand, you know... Because there's, there's a bar, isn't there? Like, you know, like, I, I mean, at least, listen, I was, at least I was good enough to, I mean, obviously God chose me because I was halfway there, but the, I don't know. Oh, my. But so to the conservative, the gospel is incredibly offensive. It's incredibly offensive because the cross stands against all schemes of self-salvation, Right? All schemes, whether liberal or conservative. It, it stands against it and says, no, hear this, you're both losers. Okay, people don't like the word losers. How about you're both lost? Same thing. It's the same thing. They don't want to hear these things. The false savior then of our world is this, approval. How do we get approval? Effort. Effort. We've got to work at it. got to work at it. So what does this look like today? What do you think? I think there are many ways, but one of the ways might be this. We discuss, we debate, 
and we argue about everything under the sun that we agree with, don't agree with, accept, and then don't accept about politics, food, movies, even what the Bible teaches on this or that or so-and-so's interpretation. We find those things so easy to give ourselves to and be passionate about. But the cross? The cross? Our need for it personally and our need to share the cross, Christ crucified to this world? Oh, some other time. Some other time. We give ourselves to these things. And yet what the cross says about our sinful hearts and sinful motivations is what we need to hear all the time. We need to hear it all the time. And we need to gospel each other in community, guys. That's what we're doing this for, is to gospel one another. And so the cross actually answers the very questions we're discussing. discussing. The gospel answer, answers every question. If, if there's a difficulty in the human life, it's because there's something about the gospel we're not believing or we've forgotten. And so we need to go back to the gospel. And then Paul nails them and everyone who is prone to this error with this. This is verse 13. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have circumcision that they may boast in your flesh. The key word here in this passage in this verse is the word boast. It's a key word. It's a great Greek word. It's ka how mai. Ka how mai. I love saying that. It's a great word. But it literally means this, to glory in. Biblically, the biblical sense is different than the human sense, and we'll look at that in a minute. And I said this before in the series, but as I had mentioned a little while ago, I would have loved to have been in the churches when these things were read, right? The believers are all there, the false teachers, and Paul's basically saying, yeah, these false teachers, the only reason why they're doing this, the only reason why they want to be part of the church, the only reason why they want to be part of a movement like the one that Jesus has started is so that their fame, their prestige, and their honor will increase. And not so much for the church and the world. They're only concerned with how they are accepted and approved of and by the world. And that's why they're presenting their religion based on human effort. That's nothing more than outwardly looking good, which really anyone can do. Anyone can do if you use enough effort. You can look good on the outside. We can do that. Paul's best evidence then that looking to ourselves will result in dismal failure is in this heart-piercing judgment when he says this. Even those who are circumcised do not keep the law. Come on. We all know this is true, right? What's the one, one of the two major criticisms of Christians? You're such hypocrites. <laughs> you say one thing and you do another. You, know? you say you follow Jesus and you love your neighbor as yourself and then you're treating me like this or others like this. It's, it's the hypocrite in us. And it, it's a silly thing not to confess, don't you think? It's such a silly thing not to just say... I do this. I'm like this. And that's what the problem is. And that's why Paul says, instead of looking to ourselves, the Apostle Paul says, the gospel will encourage us instead to do this. Number two, look to Jesus. Nowhere else looking to Christ. He says in verses 14 and 15, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. 
And so the amazing thing that Paul reveals to us to see in this verse and this letter is that ultimately, whatever you put your faith in, whatever your religion, you and everyone else will know what it is by what you boast in. What you boast in most. What, after all, is said and done is the reason that you even believe in God, let alone trust that you are forgiven, accepted, and approved by God. Is it your own effort, your own flesh, your own look at me? Or is it Christ's effort work on the cross alone? Listen to me. Hear this. How would anybody know about Christ's effort on their behalf unless you tell them? Unless you're boasting in that, as what has saved you and is making you into anything that might be worthy of praise is what he has done on your behalf on the cross. And and friend, he's done this for you too. He's done this for you too. And we need to share that with others. So no, if you truly understand the gospel, you are happy, content, and pleased to, like Paul, boast in actually nothing else. Now, I know some of you are probably looking at me and going, come on, Glenn. Are you taking away all boasting, you know, like all happiness in certain things in life? No, I'm not, and I don't think Paul is either. Um, It's not bad to boast in other things, per se, because we have to look at human boasting. I mean, most of us like to boast about our kids, right? And there's a few people who like to boast about their grandkids, right? Instagram, posting, woo, they're awesome, look how pretty they are. Oh, they're sweet. They're they're so good-looking, they're cute, right? We, We like to... We like to... You know, we like to even sometimes boast about our spouses. Go figure. You know, about our jobs or careers. We get an advancement and, you know, other people hear about it. And they're like, hey, good for you. Um, So we boast in these things. But here's the the deal. And you guys all know this, I would hope by now. Those things are not bad in and of of themselves. But here's the problem for the Christian, really for anyone in the world today. When, when they become, when the only time that you are happy and you are feeling joyful and you are feeling that the, the secret to life is being lived out in your life is because you can post ad nauseum nothing but awesome, beautiful, wonderful things on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook and always be just showing people the most beautiful parts of your life because that's all that's going on apparently is the really beautiful things. We need to be careful that those things don't become an idol. And they're an idol if they get to the point where, well, if one of those things or if a few of those things are lost, are gone, well, then my life would hardly be worth living. They've become an idol. But here's the other problem for the Christian, is if, again, they're not wrong. It's not wrong to say how wonderful my life is and and how blessed I am to have a new grandchild or a new job or a new house or whatever. That's not wrong. But if all Christian, hear me. If all we are doing as Christians is that, one after the other, after the other, after the other, and there is no cross, there's no, guys, you know, around the water cooler, like, that's great. I went to the lake with my family, too, on on Sunday. It was awesome. We had a really good time. It was beautiful, sunny. We were diving in, dogs chasing bones and all the rest was great. But I got to tell you, Sunday morning, worship and praise of our God and Creator, um, remembering what Jesus did on the cross for me and for our family, um, I'm, I'm, more, I'm more grateful for that than anything else. <laughs> Again, I confess. That's what he's getting at. That's what the point here is of this passage and this, this ending that he's getting at. So another way that all these good things become a problem is that. 
We, we are only interested in that. I want to quote Tim Keller for you. I don't have it on screen, but he actually said this in conclusion which, to this idea, and I thought this was great. He says, but if you understand the gospel, you boast exclusively and only in the cross. Our identity, our self-image is based on what gives us a sense of dignity and significance, what we boast in. Religion leads us to boast in something about us. The gospel leads us to boast in the cross of Jesus. That means our identity is in Jesus is confident and secure. We do boast, yet humbly, based on a profound sense of our flaws and a profound sense of our need daily. So the cross is central to being Christian. It's central to it. Really, really central, right? You remember in Matthew 16 where we get the name for our church? You know, upon this rock I will build my church. Jesus first had asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And Peter, you know, smart guy, he, he's the first one to say, and he, he's right this time. He goes, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus says, upon this rock, upon your testimony of faith in me, Peter, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And then the very next thing he does is after he said he's going to do that, which is awesome, he says to the guys, and first I'm going to die. What does Peter do? Peter's response is, far be it from me to let that happen. You know, I'll show you some good effort. I'll protect you. We'll not let that happen. What does Jesus say to him? Get behind me. Paul, John, George, what? Satan. It's central. Jesus had to die. It's the point. It's the point in history where everything, absolutely everything, changes. It's what Paul has been going on about in this letter. You remember what he said in Galatians 3.1, right? He said, do you remember when I was in town when I first got there? What did I do? I publicly portrayed Jesus as crucified. That's what I did. That's what brought you to faith in Jesus Christ. Nothing else. Not the Sermon on the Mount. Not, you know, all these funky stories, wonderful things about what he did and water to wine, which was really good, and all those things. No. Christ crucified. He goes on about it in every letter, pretty much. In Corinthians 15, you know, of first importance is one of the biggest ones, right? But in 1 Corinthians 1.23, he says, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles. This is right where we are right here. Right? The false teachers, the religious dudes, and then the new Christians who haven't figured out the gospel completely yet. And then he says in 1 Corinthians 2.2, 2, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So Paul says that when he boasts or glories in the cross, that the world is dead to him and he to the world. And he means that it no longer has any power no longer has any power over him, over you, over me. And why? Because he's come to the realization that all those good things that we can boast in, all of those good things are material flesh, and they will die, and they will let you down. They let me down, they will let you down. They always will. And so don't glory in them. They, they're not worthy of glory. Only he is. Only he is worthy of that kind of glory. And finally, in verse 15, he restates what he said in chapter 5, verse 6. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. But a new creation. (laughs) He's saying liberal, conservative. 
it's meaningless. That's not the point. You can argue that all you want. And the, the intricacies and the fine details of those things, people do it and have been doing it for centuries. It's not the point. The point is Jesus Christ crucified on the cross and in your place for your sins. So verses 14 and 15 really sum up what it means to rely on what Christ has done. Rather than on what I am doing or need to do, we no longer are looking to ourselves and our own best efforts at attaining a great life, but we are looking to Christ and his best ever effort, which has supernaturally changed us into these new creations. Do you feel like a new creation? Do you feel like it yet? Have you ever felt it? I know when I first got saved, I'm telling you, the first week or two, you know, Jesus not only saved me, but he shaved me. I got a haircut. It was a, you know, a lot of hair to cut. And all of these things that I used to do and partake in that were sinful and wrong were gone. And there was this point of, of elation where it was like, oh. And I really believe when I look back on that, I'm not saying that everybody has to experience that, but when I look back on that, I remember thinking, oh, something has really changed. And then, back to life, and a bunch of things that God had to work on in my life, and he's still working on in my life, to prepare me for the day when I'll be able to stand before him, and he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. That's the hope. Finally, point number three, this all leads, when we look to Christ and not to ourselves, it leads to a peaceful life. He says in verses 16 and 17, and as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon you and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. You can clearly, he's winding it up here, right? It's one of his doxology type moments where he's, he's just putting it all together. And he's wanting to leave us with some really encouraging things. But there's some important points that he says here. You remember earlier in chapter 5, he talked about walking by the Spirit. And what that looks like is the walk by, he's basically saying, this rule that he's just taught us. Boasting in Christ alone, in, in his cross alone, cross alone, above all else. He essentially says that those who will, or do, pardon me, will experience in this life the peace and mercy that we all desire. That we all desire. That point before we go to our graves, if all of us or many of us are lucky enough to live those four score years until that time, where we're able to go, you know what? My life wasn't a waste. I, I, I regret this. I regret that. No. No. I've been looking to Christ for a long time now. And it's been an amazing walk and journey with him. And I do have peace. His mercies have been availed upon me every single day. Well, he then takes, I love this. Paul can't resist it. But he takes one last shot at the false teachers, doesn't he? He takes one last shot at them. He, he himself basically says here, he has literally been whipped and beaten for preaching the cross. As, as he said earlier, they avoided that because they wanted to be friends with the world, approved by the world, and not be persecuted by being offensive and preaching Christ crucified. Paul literally says this, let no one ever now from this point on question whether or not I'm a true apostle. I have the marks of Jesus Christ on my body and on my heart. I love this guy. How can you not love the apostle Paul? 
Can you imagine the day where we get to meet Jesus and then we also get to have a coffee with Paul and go, buddy, thank you for writing this letter. Thank you so much, Holy Spirit, for encouraging him to do so. He finishes, of course, with these words. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you and your spirit, brothers and sisters. Amen. Amen? Pray with me, would you?